Before we get started, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies builds communities with the power of one. Six distinct brands come together as one single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, wireless logistics, and development solutions. Their true differentiator is building people within communities through their world-class culture. Check them out at Keeley Companies to learn more. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I have the great honor today of bringing on to this show someone that I have been moved to tears by every single time I listen to a podcast, I listen to a sermon, I listen to his story, or I've read his book. It's an awe-inspiring story of how God is going to work not only in your great days, but also in your seemingly darkest days. His name is Jonathan Pitts. Jonathan, thank you for saying yes. Thank you for joining us on the Live Inspired Podcast. Hey, John, it's good to be with you today. Dude, it is, as I told you, a huge honor. I'm coming in. Right now, the listeners are like, oh, poor O'Leary's got another cold. No, he doesn't. He's been crying all day long because I'm reading Jonathan's book right now, and we'll get into that book here in a moment. But Jonathan, if I were to meet you in a grocery store in Franklin, Tennessee, and said, hey, man, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? How would you respond to that question? I do a couple of things, but first I'm an executive pastor at a church in Tennessee called uh, Church of the City. We've got a network of churches. We have uh, three churches in Nashville, one in New York City, and just living in the way of Jesus for the renewal of our city. And I run um, a ministry for my wife called For Girls Like You, which is a magazine for tween girls and their parent and a ministry for their parents. I love doing a bunch of things at once. It keeps me excited. All this while raising four babies. All this while raising four babies with a lot of help. Right on, man. Well, we're going to back up a little bit. I know you spent some of your time in Iowa. I'm a, I'm a Missouri guy myself, but you grew up in New Jersey. W- would you just share a little bit of the, the Genesis story? Talk a little bit about growing up. It's really interesting. Uh, my mom was an Iowa girl, grew up in um, the western side of Iowa. My mom went to New Jersey to work at a music school, and my dad worked there. She's a white German American woman from the Midwest who met this black guy from New Jersey and fell in love, had five children. I grew up in a a rural South Jersey town in a biracial family in a time when biracial families weren't really a thing, or if they were, they were kind of ostracized. Um, what was really beautiful is my parents raised me in um, the faith as a, as a believer, as a believer in Jesus, as a Christian. And what was really beautiful about that is they gave us identity. Like our faith gave us identity, which kept me really strong in who I was when I could have easily not known who I was because growing up mixed in a town that wasn't diverse at all um, was really, really difficult. Our faith was just kind of like this anchor for us. My dad was just a blue collar kind of guy, worked really hard to college at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I was on an army scholarship and I, I wanted nothing more than to be a military guy my whole life, wanted to be special forces or Green Beret. And about the time that I met the woman that would change my life, Um, I was medically discharged. I had this, it's called ankylosing spondylitis, which is like a kind of like a rheumatic disease of sorts. Met this girl named Winter Danielle Evans, met her at a party, fell in love with her quickly, knew that I wanted to marry her, would fall in love with her like two weeks after 9-11. So that changed my life. I thought I was going to be going to war, ended up uh, marrying her two weeks after we graduated. We quickly 
made a move from New Jersey to Texas. It really kind of felt like I had the world ahead of me. And, and I, I just went, I'd never thought I'd be in ministry. I thought I was being sales. I was in pharmaceutical sales when I graduated from college and my company downsized and cut my division, which is how I had the opportunity to really get involved in ministry. And I did it by accident. While that was happening, um, my wife, Winter, had our first daughter, Alina, would have our second daughter, Caitlin. And then she actually stopped working after those two babies to just focus on our girls. She thought that was important. Would have our third and fourth babies, Cameron and Olivia, who are twins. So we had four babies, five and under, and uh, three in diapers at one point, which was really <laughs> beautiful and difficult. But my wife was really excited to come home, but really quickly found herself drowning in the unbelievable amount of work it is to be a mom and to be at home, especially because she had so many dreams and visions for her life. She wanted to be an author. Like when I met her, she wanted to be a barista in Italy that would write poetry and stuff on the side. And that didn't work out because she met me, but she always wanted to write. And so she was finding it really difficult to be home with our girls. And um, one day she, she wrote down this verse in her closet on a note card, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so she began to delight herself in the very things that God put in front of her, namely her daughters, Alina, Caitlin, Cameron, Olivia, God would change your life through that. This would have been 2011 about. She realized really quickly that there was a lack of resources for girls, um, specifically tween girls, because our oldest daughter was kind of moving into that age range and could read at a really high level. And all the content was pretty either crappy or outdated for girls at that age, to be honest. She just said, I'm going to create something. So she opened up Adobe InDesign and started creating this thing that would become it'd be called for girls like you magazine. She stumbled as an entrepreneur, which I didn't know that she was. She stumbled into making this magazine for girls, which would lead to her publishing multiple resources, devotionals, trade books, um, coloring books, just different resources for girls. She'd set off on that journey and I would become her supporter. I would become like her number one cheerleader, her accountant, her COO, uh, her lead marketing guy, while I was also doing other stuff in ministry and, and running as a, running a nonprofit. And then uh, our life would just kind of take off from there. And we, we did a lot of stuff together. My daughter, Alina, was cast in this movie called War Room, which is a I think it's the number seven Christian film of all time. And that would take off. And so she's this little girl in a movie while my wife is running a ministry for little girls that all work together to kind of create this synergy. They work together. They wrote a fictional series together and everything seemed to be going really well. We decided at one point, we just knew that there was change in the air. And I was looking for what was next for me. I knew that God was calling me in, in leadership to kind of grow to the next level. Through a series of events, um, I would be offered a role as executive pastor for this church. And we felt like that was what was next for me. And so we moved from Dallas, Texas, where we've been for 14 years, to Nashville, Tennessee. Um, on July 10th, 2018, we'd move here, bought our house, got our girls in school, um, worked out a bunch of the details of a new life. We'd go back to Dallas a week later um, to finish up my last week of work with the Urban Alternative, which is the ministry I ran for the guy, Tony Evans, Pastor Tony Evans. I was at work. And my wife, she just texted me and said, I'm not feeling well and kind of sent me the sick emoji. I just asked her, I said, what's wrong? And she didn't respond. So I went home and she was just doing my girl's hair. My sister-in-law was there with her two daughters. And, and she told me, she's like, hey, when you get home, I need you to be on tonight. So I knew I was coming home to just kind of do dinner with the girl. She was a writer. So I knew when she when she had a project due, like that was late nights for her. And I was on at that point, my sister-in-law was leaving. She went to lay down, which I was like, I'm going to take a quick nap. And I went to prepare dinner for the girls. And um, I brought dinner home. I prepared dinner. I, I peeked my head in the door and I said, Hey, do you want to eat? And she said, no, I'm fine. And so I went back, finished dinner and we had ribs from Costco. I'll never forget it. And I'll never eat them again. I went back to the bedroom just to floss my teeth because we had these ribs. And I went into the bedroom, went through the bedroom into the master bath and I was flossing my teeth. And as I walked out of the master bath into the bedroom, Winter had sat up and she was facing away from me. And then she just kind of like 
slumped over in a way that didn't look natural. And so I just said, why are you playing? It almost looked like she was just being lazy and just kind of like slumping over like you do when you don't want to get out of bed. It seemed like she was having like a seizure or something like that. And I, I would discover that her heart, her heart failed. What would be then the next 20 minutes would be the scariest, most awful minutes of my life um, would lead to her quick and quiet entry into heaven, a crazy, unbelievable scenario for me that I never thought I would be facing. Cause I never thought that I would outlive my wife. She would be pronounced dead at the hospital and that would change my life for forever. You know, man, it, it's an epic, tragic, somehow, and people who are listening right now are gonna be blown away by this one. Beautiful, beautiful story that you share, that you write about, that you've uh, offered to us today. And I'm, I'm gonna just kind of slow it down a little bit to bring us back through some of the details that, that uh, I think are relevant. Because for me, Jonathan, when people hear the amount of faith that you're about to model as you go through this next step, I think they'll think you're superhuman. And the, one of the beautiful things that came out so clearly in your book is how ordinary you are. And I say that with great respect and how ordinary, <laughs> and I say this with respect, your marriage was, how dumb some of your fights were and everything else. And so I'm, I'm just going to slow it down a little bit so people realize how unexceptional Jonathan Pitts is and how great God is because, because that, that's just cool, man. That gives every one of us hope in, in my mind. So going all the way back to college, back to Drexler, man, you're, you're hanging out, you're doing your life. You have your own dreams, your own aspirations. You meet this girl. What was it about winter that you just, you realized, wow, I think I just met my wife. I'm a gut guy. And so I would say instinct first, but the thing that I always, um, knew about winter was she was a dreamer, but she just had massive dreams and she kind of had these expectations in life that just kind of inspired me. I don't know why, but I grew up with like a, a mentality of like, if I can just get by, if I can just get this job, if I can just do this or that, she just had big dreams. And so it, her life inspired me. Oddly enough though, once we got married, what I realized is, although she was a dreamer, she wasn't really inclined to like hard work unless it was a thing that she wanted to do. And I, I would realize she was an entrepreneur. That's like entrepreneurs are like that. They don't want to work for anybody. They don't want to do anything unless it's the thing they want to do. And so I had to learn to appreciate her specific gifts. Um, yeah, she was beautiful to me. And we had the same faith. We shared the same faith and the same trust in, in a big God. And um, that was another part of it. But um, yeah, I would say her being a dreamer was like the number one thing that really attracted me to her. And, and, you know, it's hard to place yourself now in her shoes, but I'm sure you discussed it. What was it about you that she was drawn to? You know, what's really beautiful is I have this letter in my bedroom hanging on my wall. We did a, um, a marriage conference together. And one of the things they have you do that this thing called Weekend to Remember is that you write a letter to each other. And the letter is supposed to say what you appreciate about each other. And so I would rediscover that letter months after she passed away as I was just rifling through some things. And in that letter, she tells me, what she appreciates about me. So I have it written. And a couple of things she would say, one, she said um, that I was teaching her and the girls what it looked like to love God and to be disciplined. Um, Winter wasn't like a girl of real discipline. She was kind of like free spirit, free thinker. And so like discipline, and that's everything from like seeking God to working out, to eating well, to things like that. So she just loved, I think the rigidity in me, she liked the steadiness that I offered. Um, she thought I was cute, which, you know, that's no surprise to right. anybody. <laughs> 10 out of 10, maybe. Yeah, but honestly, I think we just, we, we, we um, complement each other really well. We were opposites in every sense of the word. We were very much opposite, which in the first, I would say five years of our marriage made marriage really difficult. Glad you brought that up because I, I think so many people, when they hear your story, if you don't share that, they think, well, he's, he's just a faithful guy and he's disciplined and he's going to figure his way through this thing. But you guys were exact opposites. 
and little things set you both off. And, you know, you, you, t- you talked and you wrote about the honeymoon. And that, that's, I think, the first time you realize, oh, my gosh, I married my opposite. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember being on that honeymoon and me wanting to get out there and just do adventures and do things and her just wanting to sleep the whole entire thing. And I'm just like, what are we doing with our lives? Yeah, that was an early, that was an early indication of, uh, of our differences. So. You, you mentioned that the girls, they came in waves, man, four girls in five years. And you also su- suggested that those are hard days. And for our young parents who are listening right now, or for the grandparents who help those young parents out right now, I don't think enough is discussed about how hard it is to be a young parent. So you wrote about it, you shared about it, and you whispered about it a moment ago, but would you talk about just some of the struggles she or we collectively faced raising those four girls? Starting out really early on, the sheer energy, mental and physical, the more kids you have, the more of it. I mean, it's just, it's just really difficult. Like you find yourself with sleep, a lot of sleepless nights. You find yourself with a lot of like emotions that you never knew you'd have, like uh, anger towards infants in a way that you, you know, I mean, not anger towards them, but anger at the situation. I remember early on with our first daughter, just like wanting her to go to sleep and she would not sleep and she would not stop fussing. And it's funny because her aunt said at one point, she just knows what she wants and she can't say it, you know? And so you're just, you find yourself so frustrated. It's just emotionally and physically draining. And you're trying to do that while you're trying to work a new career, trying to make life work. And for us, I mean, we had four girls within five years and then twins at that, which we just couldn't keep our heads above water. Look, it's the most beautiful, rewarding thing I've ever done. No doubt about it, but it's really difficult. You also mentioned that you were living in Dallas, I think you said for 14 years, and then you were getting ready to move up to Nashville. Uh, talk about that move. Like, what was it about Nashville that was so attractive that you were willing to leave behind family, her family, part of your family, your friends, your church community, your neighbors, everything that you'd built to head up to Nashville? Yeah, a couple things. One, I would say that we always just prayed about like decisions like that. And like we moved to Dallas, we prayed about it and discovered a lot of purpose there. And so we prayed about it. And we just, we just knew that there was purpose in Nashville. But in addition to that, I was actually really excited about winter, like what was here for her, like, Uh, Franklin, Tennessee, Nashville, it's kind of the mecca of Christian publishing and music. And so like her finding these girls to interview for the magazine and cover girls for her magazine and connections for partnerships and all that. I felt like this was the perfect place for her to be for her for the next stage of what she was building. And uh, conversely, I would find out that she was actually more excited for me. She would tell one of her best friends and her aunt that she was excited just to kind of rest and relax a little bit. She was excited for what God had for my future and his plans for me. And I actually wouldn't find that out until after, because she never really said stuff like that to me, but she was excited to relax and to see what God was going to do with my life. And so both of us together just, um, you know, felt like it was the right thing. Now I look back at it and I just see God's hand all over it in the sense of like, if I were to stay in Dallas, if I were to stay working in her family, it was her family, her family's ministry, who I love, who am I like her cousins are my siblings. Now her uncle, Tony, my old boss is like a spiritual dad to me now. Um, but if I would have stayed in that, I really think I would have struggled to find my own identity again. And I think also because they're such a well-known family, yeah. I think people would have assumed that I'm okay. Where we came here and my church just surrounded us because they knew we were by ourselves. We were brand new to the city. And so I thought I was coming to a town to contribute. And it's like God brought us here to heal. And so for the last two and a half years of my life, I've been healing. My girls have been healing. And we've been healing in this sleepy, quaint, beautiful, I mean, quintessential town like it's this it's like i actually just read it's like one of the top 10 towns in the country to move to right now on the day your wife passes away you mentioned it was at first the best day i think you said maybe of your entire life just filled with grace and then of course it became this tragic day for you and your family 
345 that day, you send off a text or an email. It's, it's the manuscript of the next book. Uh, what, what, what's the uh, genesis of that book? What, what's the idea behind that book that you were hitting send on and, and getting ready to celebrate? Yeah, a couple of years before that, probably 2016, uh, we were sitting down with Winter's Book Publisher and they asked us, hey, um, you guys are an awesome couple and we know you're not perfect, but we would love for you to write a book on marriage. Would you consider it? And we're like, no, we're not doing that. And they're like, well, we don't want you to write a how-to, just write a, write a join us on the journey. Like just show what you're doing. There are other young couples behind you that could benefit from some of the things you learned. And so we thought about it, prayed about it for a while and just said, okay, we can we can put on paper um, some of the mistakes we've made and the things we've walked through. And so we did. Uh, I, I'll never forget um, March of 2018, the same year Winter passed away, sitting down in the hotel for the last time and putting the, putting the finishes, finishing touches and the final words to that book. Uh, and then we would turn it in, in in March of that year. And then so on July 24th, 2018, four hours before she passed away, I'm in the office and they sent us the final edited manuscript to sign off on. And there's like the signature page, you got to sign it. And um, one of the last things I did before leaving the office that day was sign that document, forge your signature, don't tell the publisher, and um, send it back to them and basically sign off on what would then become like a time capsule of our marriage and life together, which I'm really, really grateful for. So it's, it's called Emptied Experiencing the Fullness of a Poured Out Marriage. And I think the thing that I'm really grateful for, the, the title of that book, uh, the subtitle, it's empty and experience in the fullness of a poured out marriage I know. is the one thing I don't regret in my life and in my marriage is every day seeking to pour my life out for her and her seeking to pour her life out for me, not perfectly, but intentionally. And mm -hmm. uh, so we turned that in and that was like the first sign to me of like, oh my gosh, like that's too coincidental to be coincidence. Um, it was like, for me, it was like God being like, this is going to be a hard day. It's going to be a hard month. It's going to be a hard year. It's going to be a hard life, <laughs> but ultimately I've got it. And I see what's happening and I'm, I'm moving all the pieces together. I'm working it all out and you can trust that. that it was the first sign of that for me. So mm -hmm. unbelievable. You, you mentioned that you went to go brush your teeth that day, four hours after you hit send on the manuscript. So now we're right after dinner at 744. You walk into the room and your wife who you, you just adore, man. I mean, it comes off so clearly in the way you talk about her, about her and even clear in the way you write about her. Just so evident the way you feel about her she slumped over and then you recognize uh, in her eyes really first that something is, is incredibly wrong. Would you just talk about that, Jonathan? It's one of those moments, you know, I think all of us have had moments like that where something's happening and we just don't know what to do. And I just remember not knowing what to do. I remember just like grabbing her body. I remember slapping her face, just like winter, stay with me, stay with me. I just kept saying, stay with me. Winter had a heart, a heart murmur. And uh, she also had what's called mitral valve prolapse, which is a blood clotting disorder. And so she had twice in our marriage, once in our marriage and once the little girl had bl a blood clot pass through her eye. And so I had, I had experienced that before where she couldn't see kind of half of the room. She could see, it was on a Sunday morning, she could see the floor, but she couldn't see the ceiling. And so I thought there was, I knew something was going on maybe with a blood clot or something with her heart. I wasn't sure exactly what was going on. I thought it was probably a blood clot or something like that. And so I'm just slapping her face. Just stay with me. Just stay with me. And I just started praying, just praying the most desperate prayers you'd think of. I'm a Boy Scout, Eagle Scout, um, had done CPR my entire life, different trainings for CPR. And so I started doing CPR and she was just non-responsive uh, to that. I also remember um, just Winter had such a tiny frame. She's five foot tall, five foot one, thin little frame. And I remember not wanting to hurt her yeah. like, doing CPR. And so all the different mixed emotions that come with 
wanting God to heal her with sensing that maybe she's gone already and waiting for the paramedics. And my girls were three, of my girls were there at the house, which is awful. My three youngest girls, thank God my oldest girl wasn't there. It was awful. It was just awful. In those moments, I just knew enough to know that I just needed to remain calm, as calm as I could. And the paramedics arrive. They get your wife into the back of the ambulance. They drive her toward the hospital. You're, you're uh, following in the car. You know, man, like I, my heart just goes out to you and to anyone else who's ever been in that moment. You know, I get emotional even thinking about it because this is such a personal story and it's about to become even more. So I'm going to read a little bit of what you wrote in, in just a moment. But um, it's also such a universal story because there's so many of us who have been behind that ambulance and have been offering the prayers and have been making the pleads with God. And if, if you do this, I'll do that. And everything else that the, 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 the plea bargains we make when we are in these dire situations. So as you're, as you're behind this ambulance on the way to the hospital, Jonathan, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind and your heart and your prayers? In moments like that, I wish I could say I was more optimistic. I'm a Murphy's Law kind of guy, like whatever can go wrong will go wrong. So I'm, I'm thinking through every possible scenario. Like she makes it, everything's fine. She makes it, she's in the hospital for a long time. She makes it, her brain doesn't function. She doesn't make it. Like I'm running through all these scenarios in my head and I'm praying that God would heal her. I'm praying like God do a miracle, heal her. I have no idea what's going on. Like I'm praying that but I'm not as positive as I wish I, as I wanted to be in that moment, I'm not as positive. I'm just running through the scenarios. And maybe it's just how God's wired me and how God's built me. I'm praying, I'm texting to my pastors, basically, two guys that are really close to me, Dr. Evans being one, another guy named Scott. I'm texting my sister-in-law, I'm texting my mom, I'm texting my wife's best friend, her cousin, named Priscilla. I'm just doing all the things. I'm just busy. I, I remember actually really vividly, it's, it's actually beautiful thinking about it now, but the hospital that was closest to that house was kind of like this dirty older hospital that's kind of known for where people go if they're not going to make it. And mm -hmm. I thought we were going there because it was the closest hospital. And that's where they told me we were going, but we actually ended up going South instead of North. And so I, and we're switched backing down this country road. And I realized that we're going to another hospital. And the beautiful thing about that is, is a brand new hospital. And if you know anything about my wife, Winter, Winter um, did not like dirty hotels, dirty hotel sheets, Like she was a five-star kind of girl. And so we were going to like this brand new, new hospital and, one of our best friends happened to be a general surgeon there. And so I, one of the people I texted was her. And so when I got there, she was one of the first people to receive my oldest daughter who got there later. And she said to my oldest daughter, hey, I want you to, she said, look me in the eye. She grabbed her face and she said, I want you to know you serve a big, a big, big God. Don't you ever forget it. So even in little things like that, the fact that we went to that hospital where one of our good friends was there who could look my daughter in the eye and say something with confidence of real meaning. It's just massive for me. And just another reminder. I mean, the one thing I do after and reflecting on things is I do look for, there's this verse in the Bible that says, it's Philippians 4, it says, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is kind, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And it's a verse I've really tried to own my whole life, but more so in these last couple of years to think about what's true and right and honorable and pure and lovely. If you think about those things that you stop thinking about things that are, not pure and right and honorable and lovely and admirable and excellent. Even as I look back on my life now and look back at that story, I just look for the silver lining, I guess you would say. That's what that verse is saying. Look for the silver lining. Look for God's lining in it all. It's what I'm doing now, but even as I was having to talk to my girls and all the things that would happen, just looking for what's true, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, excellent, praiseworthy. Eventually you speak to the physicians and uh, one of the physicians shares, we had a pulse and then adds, we, we, we lost it. And then Jonathan, I'm going to read three paragraphs that just deeply moved me, man, when I read your book, the whole darn thing. And we'll talk about your, your move up to Franklin here in a moment, but the way you share so tenderly 
an experience that is the most intimate experience of your life, I would imagine. I can't fathom something more intimate, intimate than what you are about to share with us. So here are your words that I'd like to read to our listeners today. Uh, this is right after you found out that your wife had passed away. As I approached the table on which she lay, everything else around me fell away. The staff, the equipment, and the buzzing lights became a blur as my focus went straight to my beautiful girl. I thought about how much I loved looking at her face and the way her hair would fall on the pillow. In fact, at this moment, she looked like she was taking a nap and had forgotten to wrap her hair as she usually did to keep it from tangling. Her beautiful freckles were vivid on her small face. I gently pressed my lips and cheek against her forehead. Time seemed to stop and everything around me just went quiet for a moment. It was just winter and me. It felt as though she had left her earthly body, but still seemed close somehow, as though she could hear me. Through much heartache and trembling, I whispered these words in her ear as I caressed her hair. It's okay, babe. It's okay. I love you. And it, it is okay. I will take care of the girls. You don't have to worry about them. I love you with all that I am. And you are the best thing that ever happened to me. I shared a moment of tenderness, intimacy with my winter wishing that I could find better words to express all that was in my heart. I thought of so many times in the past when our tears would mingle and we would comfort one another. I thought of how I would sometimes sing to her during the most difficult moments when she was giving birth, when we were trying to come together after a little squabble, after something inconsequential, or when she needed some reassurance. I was never fully confident in my singing voice, but with winter, I had full confidence. In fact, I had sung to her at our wedding. This moment was just as sacred. So I sang to her. Dude, I've read this. Um, and I think of you and I think of the man who's now got to figure out how to raise four girls and who's got to bury his wife and who has to go outside of the waiting room and tell you know, her family and your family, and the friends, and the neighbors and figure out what you're going to do in your life and how you're willing to share this moment with us, like the moment with us. So when you hear those words or when you have the, the gall to write them and then share them, what goes through your mind? You know, oftentimes people like private moments, people want to keep private. And for me, like I say that moment is sacred. There's this quote by C.S. Lewis. I think I write about it in the book. Why are dark moments holy moments? I've never read that quote before a bunch of passed away, but there was something about that moment that was incredibly dark that was still incredibly sacred. For me, it's this beautiful moment. I felt like a beautiful moment of me, like literally giving her back to God. I was reminding myself of where she was going and reminding myself that I was gonna be okay in that moment that she was okay where she was going. And so to me, it's sacred and beautiful. And so why not share it? The thing I've learned about death for me, maybe it's based on what I believe. It's not as scary as I thought it was, but it was a beautiful moment that I wanna share because I, I really just believe that it can be beautiful. Like giving our loved ones back to the Lord can be a really beautiful thing. And I hope my, one day when I go back to the Lord, it'll be a beautiful thing because I know where I'm going because I trust that my Savior is going to take me home. And that's what I believe was happening with her. It was crazy, though. I mean, it was just so sudden, yeah. super surreal. I, was, I could barely believe what was happening because it was, it was incredibly surreal. Um, but there was no doubt in my mind that there was a moment where her soul just left her body. Like winter was no more. That was a body with a soul one day, and then it was just a body the next she was no longer there. I remember saying like, that's not her. That's not her. I kept saying, that's not her. 
I don't see why not share it because it's beautiful. And I would hope that people could find beauty in that moment as difficult as it will be, especially given circumstances. You know, it can be really, really difficult. I would have loved to have had that moment with her when we're 90. I know many of our listeners, because they share their stories with us, they email, they text, they call, they write in. And frequently they thank us for what we're doing here, but they also share some of the difficulties they've been through. Many of them have lost a spouse, have lost a child, have lost a parent, have lost a grandparent. During the pandemic, many of us have lost family members and friends and community, community members. Death is scary for many of us. So I think when people hear you say, it's, you know what, John, I got close to it. I'm not scared of it anymore. Would you talk a little bit more about that? It's interesting. We traveled a ton from like 2005 till, well, to current. And I used to, I was so afraid to fly. Like every flight I'm thinking this plane could go down. I'm like imagining how it's going to go down. And I got so afraid at one point that I decided I was going to just do something about it. And so I actually memorized this verse. It's a proverb that says, have no fear of sudden death, the ruin that overtakes the wicked for the Lord is at your right side and will keep your foot from being snared. And I memorized that verse and I would be on planes reciting that verse over and over and over again and over and over and over again, because I was thinking that verse was saying, have no fear of sudden death or the, uh, or the ruin that overtakes the wicked for the Lord will be your right side and will keep your foot from being snared. I thought he was saying your foot won't be snared. Meditating on that verse lifted my fear of my own tragic death, specifically yeah. in flying. But when winter passed away, I had this realization that that verse isn't about just not dying because we're all going to die someday. But the fact that you're not gripped in death, you're not gripped that you cannot be gripped. Have no fear of sudden death and the ruin overtakes the wicked. The Lord is at your right side. If you know him, if you love him, if you trust him, and he will keep your foot from being snared is even in death, your foot will not be snared. And so the thing for me is, even when winter died, I knew that she didn't die. Like I knew that she was alive and I knew that she was with the Lord. I I'd had to come through my own personal transformation of not being afraid of, you know, scary death or, and most of us have this fear of dying in a plane crash. You know, a lot of us do. I had to get over that, but that was like a precursor to walking with winter through that step. It was in that moment where I realized it wasn't that scary. And I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that scary because I was watching something happen that I like, I can read about, I can go to Corinthians and read that like, you know, this earthly tent we have, if that tent would be destroyed, we have this heavenly home that is waiting for us, this heavenly body that we have that's waiting for us. And I'm like watching this soul leave this body, like literally what the Bible says, I'm watching it happen. It just was like, oh, okay, that's what he's talking about. Like I'm experiencing what Paul is talking about when he's writing those words. There are certain things that I felt in those moments, like even like that, like I'm sure I'll probably have moments where I'm afraid of death again, or I'm afraid if my, I've had moments where I'm afraid for my girls, where I uh, recently lost two of my girls at the mall. And I had, I was gripped by fear when I lost my girls at the mall, but I'm talking about in the actual process of watching her, mm. her body it just wasn't as scary as I thought. Your home was Dallas, but you just signed the papers to move to Franklin. You weren't there at that time, but you were, you were on the way up there. And I found the fact that you made the decision to move anyway, you know, to leave 14 years behind and to move to Franklin, to move up to, toward Nashville, Tennessee. And then the community's response to your arrival. There are only about 72 parts of your book and your story that moved me to tears. But one of them was this, the, the, the story of the way they basically had a homecoming party for you and your four girls. Would you just share the goodness of that story with our listeners? Yeah, see, the goodness to me of that story is actually them coming, a hundred and some people around my house, celebrating us as we pulled up with balloons and signs and music was a fulfillment of something I was really scared about. Like I actually was, when winter passed away, I'm like, do we go? Like I could take my old job back. I didn't lose my job. I could literally stay. No, nobody replaced me. I could step back in. My girls will have their cousins. I'll have my 
wife's cousins who are like siblings to me. We have our home, like life is safe here. And I was actually, um, the day before Winter's funeral, I'm taking a walk with my oldest daughter. She asked if we could take a walk and she asked me, she said, dad, are we still going to Nashville? And I said, well, like any good leader should, I was like, well, when you pray about it, think about it, you know, we'll take our time. And, and she just looks at me and she goes, dad, like, I feel like we're supposed to go. Mom was more excited to go than anybody. I feel like we're supposed to go. And that was just the amount of faith that I needed as a 38 year old man, just the amount of faith I needed to just keep walking forward in that journey. My six, well, at that point, 14 year old daughter gave it to me. And so pulling up to that house and having those people cheering us on was almost like this moment where God's like, see, I have you, like, I've got you, I've got community for you. I've got new brothers and sisters for you. I have people for you that are going to come to your aid and assist you and be there for you and friendships for you. That was just a small representation of actually what would happen. But it was just like, I took a faith step and God was like, see, I can, I can take care of you. I can do this. And he has in so many different ways. It's been amazing. You wrote about how you'd never really been alone. You know, you're from a, a, a family, you had friends around you all the time. You married your college sweetheart. You were married for a decade and a half and now you're alone. A lot of individuals right now, Jonathan, as you know, are spending this pandemic relatively alone. And it's not new to the pandemic. I think there was a, a study done back in 2018 that said 64% of us feels if we are doing life completely by ourselves, completely on our own. So what have you learned during this season of going through part of this journey by yourself? And what encouragement might you have for those of us who feel as if we are completely on our own right now? For me, I've learned the value of solace and solitude, of being alone. Um, not like I would never... I don't want to be alone. I don't like being alone. I don't enjoy being alone. But for, for two years of my life, I have been able to sit in silence and solitude and really think about what's important. I've been able to pray about um, a lot of different things. I've been able to just sit in a space. Actually, it's so funny because we remodeled our bedroom just before, probably a month before we moved, not realizing we were going to move so fast. Winter uh, kind of decorated it with a friend of mine who's a designer. And above our bed, she hung these words, be still, two different frames, be still. And I never knew how to be still. Like, I just couldn't be still. When we moved into our new house, we took that remodeled bedroom, all the furniture, all the wall hangings, all the things, and put it back up. So it looked just like our bedroom back in, da in Dallas. And those words hung there. And when I sat down in my chair in the corner for the first, the second, maybe the third time, I looked up at those words and I felt like it was winter telling me, just be still, just rest, just relax, just trust. And, you know, it's funny. I sat in that same chair last night um, to write some things in silence, in solitude, my bedroom's become just like the safe haven for me, for me. And I've actually enjoyed, I've enjoyed being by myself hmm. uh, for the first time. And I sat there and I just reflected on the fact that it's really been in the stillness, in the quietness that I've heard so much from God and I've received so much strength. And I've been able to just actually even rest my mind as a busy guy. That's always gone, 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 done, done, done. Her passing was really the first time I ever really had like a sabbatical of sorts or, or, or a break from a lot of things. And I'm just really grateful. I had people surround me that allowed, like, even with my girls, like to help me with meals and help me with car pickup and drop off. And so I had the bandwidth to stop for a little bit. Like I took a full month after she passed away. I didn't work. And I just really was in my house and my bedroom most of the time. But that time was really important in my, in my grieving process and to actually hear what's going on inside of my heart. Um, to hear the lies going on inside of my head, to sense the truth that God was giving me that I could, that I could trust. So I, the silence and solitude was actually a gift to me. By God's grace, I'm not living in that anymore, like every day. Like I've got lots of noise in my life, lots of life back, vibrancy, all that. I'm actually in a relationship. Yeah, there's just lots that is going, that I'm actually grateful for that silence, and that solitude that I had. And I didn't just try to, well, I did try. <laughs> I did try to wish it away. 
but I couldn't. And I finally had to just sit in it. And so I had a grieving season where I just sat in it. It was, and it was beautiful. I, I would say, don't do that. Even that alone. I had counselors. I had, a, I went to counseling. I would definitely recommend anybody walking grief, through grief to have counseling and have other voices in your life. You know, there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel, like have other voices in your life. Don't do the alone thing without reaching out. You need to be reaching out to anybody in your life that can offer you wisdom and guidance and encouragement and safety. Um, but the solace and the solitude can be a beautiful thing. When your future readers set down the book, My Winter Season, uh, and they wipe away their tears, what, what's one thing that you hope is renewed within them? If you, if you could get, you know, kind of provide any wish for your readers, what do you hope they get out of the My Winter Season? I hope they get hope, especially if they really need it. My mentor and spiritual dad, Tony Evans, says that hope, he defines hope as joyful expectation of a better tomorrow. It's a simple definition, but I love that definition because it's just joyful expectation that something will be better than what you've gone through. And so if you've gone through something that's been really, really difficult and really painful, I want them to know that they can trust that life can be better and hope can come. Mm. And ultimately, I believe that hope comes in Jesus. I believe that hope comes in a relationship with God. And so whether that hope be here on earth or hope eternally, the hope is that it's in both places. It's here on earth and it's eternally, but that there is hope. There's always hope, joyful expectation of a better tomorrow. I hope that's what they get out of my book. Jonathan Pitts, we have seven questions that tether all of our beautiful guests together, and you certainly fit the bill for that. So I'm going to guide you through what we call the Live Inspired Seven. The very first question, these ought to be layup questions for you. Okay. What's the best book you've ever read, or maybe the most impactful book you've ever read? Most impactful book I've ever read, Strong Father, Strong Daughters by Meg Meeker would be one, and then Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis would be the second. Awesome. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in New Jersey that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly and as brightly today? I'm probably more pessimistic now than I was then. I probably was more hopeful as a kid. It's so funny we're talking about hope. Always expecting the best, you know, then. If your home caught fire and your baby girls are out, all the pets that you may have are out and you're out safe and you have an opportunity right now to run back inside and grab one item, just one thing that really matters to you, what would you run back in and save? Probably a photo album of just my family, just the just the memories of my family. Like photos speak so much to me. So probably a photo album. Hopefully a, a picture of the letter your wife wrote you is in there because that, uh, I mean, I, I just think to have that forever is just such a gift. So the beautiful thing is I have that digitally, so I won't lose you that. Have that <laughs> I don't think about that. You're man, dude. Yeah. If, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you like to have a nice long conversation with? Yeah, you know, I got asked this question recently, and the person right now that I'd love to have a long conversation with would probably, probably be Tiger Woods. I've admired him since I was 16, and I've not seen anybody go through as many high highs and low lows as he has. And so I'd love to just sit down with him and pick his brain about it, you know. Um, he's just one of those, I don't fan, I don't, I don't fanboy over many people, but, you know, he's just one, I was 16 when he went pro, so probably Tiger Woods would be, would be that guy for me. Lots of people, lots of spiritual mentors, all that, but Tiger would be one, probably the one. Awesome. What's the best advice Tiger or anybody else ever gave you? Probably my dad. Um, my dad used to say this thing, all you have is your name. Our name meant so much. Pitts, our last name meant so much. He's like, all you have is your reputation. So treat it well. He would say it different ways, but he always just harped on the need to have a good name. It's always been valuable, valuable to me and always something I've, I've held on to, just wanting to have a good name and wanting to know when somebody says my name, they're a good thought stop, you know. Uh, your father would be proud. So question number six is, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? 
this uh, young spry kid just about to graduate, what advice would you give yourself? Just relax. Everything's going to be okay. Just relax. Jonathan Pitts, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I don't want to over-spiritualize things, but there's a verse that actually I feel like summarizes my wife's life that I want to summarize mine. It's Acts 13, 36, and it's about David. David from the Old Testament, killed Goliath, was a king, all that. It says in Acts 13, 36, that David served the purposes of God for his generation, and then he fell asleep. Hmm. I want it to be said about me that I serve the purposes that God put me on this earth to do, to serve. Jonathan Pitts, thank you for serving this generation, for living out that purpose that has been placed in front of you, and for sharing this intimate, beautiful story of your wife, of your love, and of the truth that even through the difficult times, the best days remain in front of us. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. My friends, that is Jonathan Pitts. He's the author of My Winter Season, just recently released. My name is John O'Leary, and today's your day. Live Inspired. A word from our friends at Keeley Companies. In the words of Keeley Companies CEO, Rusty Keeley, when it comes down to it, there are two things that make Keeley Companies incredible. People and process. The strategic growth model called the Keeley Way ensures that Keeley achieves results on purpose, including five-year visions, scorecards, meaningful action plans. The Keeley Way allows Keeleyans to turn dreams into reality and drives goals to realize visions. Because of this relentless focus on people and culture, Keeley Companies has experienced explosive growth that shows no signs of slowing down. Learn more at KeeleyCompanies.com.